I want to continue the discussion of pandemics. We talked about the bubonic plague and the Spanish flu. Mr. and Ms. America, this is Dr. S. The Legend. Just to give you an idea of the devastation of some of these diseases, it's estimated that in the 20th century alone, that's between the years 1900 and 1978, when the last case was reported, that there were 300 million deaths from smallpox worldwide. Compare that with the Spanish flu, which was covered about a year and a half. It's estimated that 50 or 100 million people died from the Spanish flu. If we look at COVID or SARS-CoV-2, up until today, the last number that I came up with is 5.8 million. That's not 58 million. That's less than 6 million. So we have to keep these numbers in perspective in terms of history. The most important person associated with smallpox is a doctor by the name of Dr. Edward Jenner. He's widely regarded as the father of immunology. He was not the first to suggest that infection with smallpox conferred specific immunity to smallpox, nor the first to attempt cowpox inoculation for this purpose. So the origin of smallpox, it's believed that it's appeared around 10,000 B.C. before recorded history. Earliest evidence of smallpox occurred in some of the mummies from Egypt around 1500 B.C. Smallpox was introduced to Europe sometimes between the 5th and 7th centuries. It was an epidemic during the Middle Ages. So we have this concept of epidemic, pandemic, endemic, which means it's a pandemic or an epidemic. It never goes away. It's also associated with the uh, plague of Antonine, which accounted for the death of almost 7 million people, which began the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. It's obvious that smallpox was spread through trade routes, the Arab expansion, the Crusades, discovery of the New World. These things spread the disease. Smallpox was unknown in the New World until the conquistadors, Spanish and Portuguese, brought the disease. The disease decimated the local population. It was instrumental for the fall of the empire of the Aztecs and the Incas. We're only talking about a small number of conquistadors, and how are they able to conquer millions of people? Basically, biological warfare. Another example of uh, this use of biological war warfare occurred during uh, the uh, American Revolution. The uh, British attempted to intentionally infect Native Americans who uh, opposed the British. Smallpox affected all levels of society. In the 18th century in Europe, it's estimated that 400,000 people died annually from smallpox. So you take that number of 400,000 and you times it by 100, you're going to get a lot of people. One-third of survivors went blind. Symptoms of smallpox, also known as the speckled monster, appeared suddenly and was devastating. Fatality rate or mortality anywhere between 20 to 60 percent. That means every person that got the disease anywhere between 20 to 60 percent 
died. And those that survived had disfiguring scars, particularly on their face. So what people did was they would put in wax to cover the indentations on their face. This began the uh, implementation of what were called fireplace screens. People could sit in front of a fireplace, but there was a screen in front of their face so that the heat would not hit their face because if it did, the wax would melt. Anyway, mortality rate was even higher among infants. Anywhere between 80 and 90% of infants that got smallpox perished. Now, oftentimes, smallpox uh, was synonymous with the term variola, a Latin term derived from various, meaning stained, a mark on the skin. The term smallpox, pock means sack, was first used in England at the end of the 15th century to distinguish the disease from syphilis, which was also devastating. Syphilis in England was known as the great pox, So they couldn't call smallpox the great pox because the term was already taken. Now, in merry old England, if you wanted to curse someone out, you just simply told them, a pox upon you. And that would include both syphilis and smallpox. So you covered all your bases. It was common knowledge way back in ancient history that if you survived smallpox, it gave you lifetime immunity. So quite often the survivors were around to treat those that were presently ill because they knew that they wouldn't get it. Before the discovery of vaccination, and I'll try to distinguish between vaccination and inoculation, today we use these terms synonymously, but there was a big difference historically. The word inoculation comes from the Latin term inoculare, meaning to graft. Inoculation refer to the subcutaneous installation of smallpox virus into a non-immune individual. They used an inoculator, like a needle. The needle was inserted into an individual that had smallpox right into the, the pus of the person that was infected. And then the material was then subcutaneously put in their skin, either in the arms or legs of the non-immune person. We had the terms inoculation and variolation, often used interchangeably historically. Now, variolation came to Europe at the beginning of the 18th century with the arrival of travelers from from Istanbul. This was a result of one individual. Her name was Lady Mary Wortley Montague. She was responsible for the introduction of variolation in England. In 1750, Lady Montague suffered from a really bad case of smallpox, which severely disfigured her face. The Lady Montague was determined not to have her children die from smallpox, whereas her brother had died, and she knew about inoculation, so she had her five-year-old son inoculated successfully, and then she wanted her four-year-old daughter to be inoculated, but she wanted to spread the word, so she did it since she was royalty of sorts, she did it in the presence of the physicians of the royal court. After the variolation procedure, word of the practice spread to several members of the royal family. Her physician was then granted the royal license to perform a trial of variolation or inoculation on six prisoners. 
1721. The prisoners were then given the right, if they survived, to get their freedom. Members of the royal family, royal court physicians, and other physicians observed the trial. All prisoners survived the experiment, and those exposed to smallpox later proved to be immune. In the months following the first trial, her physician repeated the experiment on orphan children. I don't know how he got a hold of these. And again, successful. Then her doctor treated two daughters of the Princes of Wales. Not surprisingly, the procedure gained general acceptance after this success when the royals readily adopted inoculation. In Europe, the medical profession was relatively organized and new methods of variolation or inoculation became quickly known among physicians. There was a high demand for protection against smallpox, and they did this on a massive scale. The only problem was that with inoculation, 2 to 3% of the people would get smallpox and would die. But this was much better than the 20 to 80% of people who were dying. Among those famous people who were inoculated, Empress Maria Theresa of Austria and her children and her grandchildren, Frederick II of Prussia, King Louis XVI of France and his children, Catherine II of Russia and her son, King Frederick II of Prussia also inoculated all his soldiers. In fact, virilization was widely practiced in Europe until Dr. Jenner's discovery. Now, the practice of virilization or inoculation reached the New World in 1721 under the guidance of Reverend Cotton Mather and Dr. Zabadil Boyston. Mather and Boyston used a statistical approach to compare the mortality rate of natural smallpox infection which, with that contracted by inoculation. There was a great pandemic in 1721 in Boston where 12,000 citizens contracted smallpox. The fatality rate for smallpox was about 20% during this epidemic, whereas those that had been inoculated, it was only 2%. This was the first time that a, a comparative analysis was used to evaluate medical procedures. After 1729, epidemic in Boston, inoculation or variolation became widespread in the colonies in the 13 colonies. In the American Revolution in 1776, American soldiers under George Washington were unable to take Canada from the British troops because of a smallpox epidemic that reduced the number of healthy troops in Washington's army. British troops, on the other hand, were all inoculated. By 1777, Washington got the message, and he inoculated all of his soldiers, any and all of them that were engaged in military operations. Now I want to talk specifically about the work of uh, Dr. Edward Jenner, who was British, and his work begins in 1796. As I mentioned previously, he wasn't the only one, but he was the most dedicated and received the greatest amount of publicity for dealing with the uh, disease of smallpox. For many years, it was the belief that dairy maids in Britain were protected from smallpox naturally after having suffered from a disease called cowpox. Jenner concluded that cowpox not only protected against smallpox, but also could be transmitted from one person to another 
as a deliberate mechanism of protection. In May of 1796, Dr. Jenner found a young dairymaid, Sarah Nelms, who had cowpox, lesions on her hands and arms. Cowpox sort of looked like smallpox, but it wasn't. On May 14, 1796, using matter from Sarah Nelms' arms, he inoculated an eight-year-old boy by the name of James Phipps. Phipps was the son of one of Dr. Jenner's uh, employees. Subsequently, the boy developed a mild fever, was sick for a number of days, but he recovered. In July of 1796, Jenner inoculated the boy again, this time with smallpox, and nothing happened. It's been rumored that he he, uh, gave him smallpox a good number of times, just to make sure there's no direct evidence of that. Young eight-year-old boy, Phipps, he never got smallpox. So in 1798, Jenner published a book on his use of smallpox as a a preventative measure, the use of cowpox as a preventative measure so you don't get smallpox. Now, the Latin word for cow is vaca, and cowpox is vaccinitia. Jenner decided to call this new procedure vaccination. Despite many errors, many controversies during this period of time, the use of vaccination spread rapidly in England. By 1800, reached many European countries as well as the New World. Jenner sent vaccines to his medical acquaintances far and wide. As a result, in 1800, he sent some of the material to a doctor, Waterhouse, who was professor of physics at Harvard University in Boston. Waterhouse introduced vaccination in New England and then persuaded Thomas Jefferson to try it in Virginia. And Waterhouse received tremendous support from Jefferson, who appointed him vaccine agent in the United States. Jefferson also received tremendous support from uh, Washington and other uh, leaders in the United States. Jenner received tremendous acclamation from the British Parliament. They gave him 10,000 pounds for his work. Later, they gave him 20,000 pounds. In any case, he had his detractors. All in all, vaccination replaced inoculation. And by 1840, inoculation was banned. And everyone uh, in Britain had to get vaccinated. So I mentioned cowpox, specifically the disease, which is used to prevent smallpox. As we mentioned previously, it gets its name from dairymaids touching the udders of infected cows. And now for a quick word from our sponsor, Classic Cocoa. Shop sustainably with Classic Cocoa, authentic Chanel vintage accessories. All of their products are guaranteed authentic or your money back. Give a loved one the joy of vintage with Classic Cocoa. Use code THELEGEND for 10% off at ClassicCoco.com. Now, back to the show. Back in the 1700s, English farmers discovered that dairymaids who had contracted and recovered from cowpox not only became immune to further cases of cowpox, but also to smallpox. Nowadays, cowpox is a rare disease. It still occurs in Great Britain and some European countries. Cows are no longer the main carrier of the virus. Instead, 
rodents are the natural hosts of the virus, who then pass it on to domestic cats. Thus, they call it catpox. Although human-to-human transmission has not been reported, most cases of human cowpox or catpox occurs in young people. I guess they're playing with their cats a lot. So as a result, most cases of cowpox appear as a pus-like lesions on the hands and face, which then ulcerate and form a black scab before healing on their own. The process can take uh, up to 12 weeks. It's not lethal. People don't die from this. Uh, they get over it. It's sort of like comparable to like poison ivy. Now, just to sort of recapitulate uh, some of the historical aspects of smallpox, we mentioned previously that smallpox came to the New World in approximately uh, the year 1518. The conquistadors landed on the island of Hispaniola. By doing so within a fairly short period of time, about 90% of the native population was killed by smallpox, three or four million people, form of biological warfare. Cortez, when he went into Mexico, he only brought with him 500 men against millions of Aztecs. Almost all of them got smallpox and died. Some of the famous people that got smallpox, Queen Elizabeth I of England was a victim of the disease, but she recovered. Abraham Lincoln was infected with smallpox as he was giving the Gettysburg Address. That's one of the reasons why he had a beard to cover up the pockmarks. Joseph Stalin, dictator in the Soviet Union, was severely scarred. As a result, he had to have his pictures uh, painted over to hide the the lesions. Uh, Unfortunately, there were some important people in history uh, that died from smallpox. Queen Mary of England, the Holy Emperor Joseph I, Tsar Peter II, King Louis XV of France, so not everyone was so lucky with smallpox. And again, once you have smallpox, you have lifelong immunity. If you have inoculation, you have long-term immunity. But the downside is 2 to 3% of the people that got inoculated died. In terms of vaccination, after a period of time, like most vaccines, loses its efficacy. I looked on the Internet I was vaccinated as a child a good number of years ago, and I looked on the Internet and I wanted to find out whether the vaccine was still uh, in my system, and they had a, a way to compute it based on your age and when you thought you were vaccinated. It said that I had about a 5% immunity since the time of being vaccinated. I don't know whether you can actually go to your doctor today and uh, get vaccinated against smallpox. I don't know whether they they keep the vaccine. In 1921, United States in that year reported over 100,000 cases of smallpox. This is just about 100 years ago. In 1949, there was an outbreak of eight cases in Texas. One person died. That was the last time anyone got smallpox in the United States. However, the World Health Organization began an eradication movement in the late 1970s. 1960s, rather, where they wanted to uh, eliminate smallpox in the rest of the world. In 1967, there were still anywhere from 33 to 44 countries that still had epidemics or endemic smallpox. Most of these places were remote areas of Africa, South America, 
in Asia. It was impossible to vaccinate everyone due to the fact that these people lived in remote areas. So they started a program where they thought maybe they could vaccinate 80% of the population and this would be enough. So they came up with a strategy of surveillance and containment. This didn't work out. They uh, repurposed their program and the World Health Organization decided to offer a reward to anyone that reported a case. This was before the time of cell phones and the internet. So the entire operation was undertaken with little communication between doctors and those that were afflicted by smallpox. The only way to get the word out was by shortwave radio. When the doctors heard about someone that had smallpox, they would immediately go and isolate that person from the community. After they isolated the person, they would then vaccinate the entire community against the disease, which makes sense. And isolating the person, therefore, the person could not spread the disease. So they wound up probably only vaccinating about 50% of the people that they, they thought they could vaccinate. But this thing, but this method worked. And so by 1977, the last case of smallpox was reported. This was in Somalia. Around this period of time, uh, smallpox was still being stored in many laboratories around the world. It's decided that this it might be too dangerous a situation. So in 1979, there was a global commission appointed by the World Health Organization that were going to reduce the number of live smallpox to be kept in laboratories around the world so it could not be used as a biological weapon. So far as we know, uh, smallpox is only kept in two places today, and that's the CDC lab in Atlanta, one in uh, Russia, which is called Vector. The fact that a disease that was once as deadly as smallpox was totally eradicated is mind-boggling. But the fact that it can still exist in labs is disquieting. It's highly unlikely that the C- CDC and Vector were the only places where uh, the virus is being kept, but we obviously don't know could be used as a biological weapon. That's why the labs uh, continue to keep and store a huge amount of vaccine that could be easily dispensed in case smallpox would be used again as a biological weapon. So there hasn't been a case of smallpox since the, since the 1970s. Smallpox holds a distinction and the honor of being the only infectious disease ever to be eradicated from nature completely. It's gone now. The virus had a good run for thousands of years, ravaging the world. Let me move on, do a double feature, or as they say in baseball, a doubleheader, and link up with another interesting disease, epidemic, possibly pandemic, and that's the strange disease of Ebola. This occurred, the last outbreak of Ebola was between 2013 and 2016. I remember there was a tremendous amount of fear in the media about Ebola coming to the United States, infecting a lot of people. The fact is there were only four cases of Ebola that came to the United States, and there was only one death. The main outbreak of Ebola, the last outbreak, occurred in West Africa in three countries, Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. There were about over close to 29,000 cases. 
of which over 11,000 people died. There were 36 other cases outside of these three countries, so it was contained within a relatively small area. Uh, The first case occurred in Guinea, West Africa. The first case was that of a child. His symptoms were fever, vomiting, and he died fairly quickly. Then his sister died. Then his mother died. His grandmother died. Midwife and nurse, they all died. And then the contagion spread throughout his village and to other villages in southern Guinea. most puzzling aspect of Ebola virus, since it was first recognized four decades ago, is that it disappears for years at a time. Since 1976, since an outbreak in 1976 in Democratic Republic of the Congo, the sequence of Ebola has been sporadic. We went 17 years without a single confirmed case of Ebola. So it comes and goes. Now we know a virus can't survive for long or replicate at all, except within a living creature. That means it needs a host, at least one kind of animal or plant or fungus or microbe whose body serves as its primary environment and whose cell machinery it can co-opt for reproducing. Some harmful viruses abide in non-human animals and only occasionally spill into people. They cause diseases the scientists label zoonosis. Ebola is a zoonosis, an especially nasty and perplexing one, killing many of its human victims in a matter of days. Where does it hide? Well, we know it doesn't hide in chimpanzees or gorillas or other animals because it often kills them also. It's been believed for a long time that fruit bats might be the answer. Despite all kinds of research, Ebola virus has never been tracked to its source in the wild. Don't want to get into controversy at this time. Although scientists are working on it, they still haven't found a non-human source for SARS-CoV-2. They're working on it, but they still haven't found it. Outbreaks of Ebola virus, again, have been relatively infrequent, only about two dozen outbreaks in the last 40 years. Rare occurrence, almost everyone was traceable to a human, single human case, and this person was believed was infected from the wild. And then we have, following that, human-to-human transmission. So they haven't found a source, source in nature, for Ebola. As I mentioned previously, they haven't found any natural source for SARS-CoV-2. So by process of elimination, theoretically, there may not be a natural source. There may be another conclusion, but we'll leave that for others to investigate. This is Dr. S signing off. I'm done. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Conversations with Dr. S. Thank you to our sponsor, Classic Coco. Contact Dr. S through his email, drsthelegend at gmail.com. If you get the chance this week, please leave us a five-star review anywhere you listen to your podcasts.